Welcome to the Gnostic Insights Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sid Ropp. back to Gnostic Insights. As we delve deeper and deeper into Gnostic cosmogony and cosmology, I feel the need to remind you that this information is what Gnosis is all about. This information represents the long-hidden knowledge that has been guarded from all but those specially designated the privilege of seeing it. Here at Gnostic Insights, we believe that Gnosis is written on every person's inner being, and therefore available to every person that seeks it out. The only sense in which this gnosis is hidden now is the limitation set upon each person's readiness to receive it. But whether or not you grasp these Gnostic insights, you can take comfort in knowing that none of this is in any way essential to your redemption and resurrection. All you need to recognize is that the Father above is the source of your life and your consciousness, that you come from the Father, and to the Father you will return. Christian Gnostics recognize the essential role of the Christ in our return to the fullness, because Christ is the correction that returns us all to full gnosis of the fullness and the Father. And in the Christian tradition, this is in the form of the person of Jesus the Christ. We'll cover that concept in more depth in a later episode. But whether or not you believe in the mission of Jesus as the Christ, the Bible and the Tripartite Tractate says that the Christ completed its mission of redemption and that all second-order powers will be returning to the fullness of God. And if you don't believe it now, you'll find out later. So, with that reminder... Here is this week's continuation of The Simple Explanation of Gnosticism. In our last episode, we heard about the fall and the beginnings of our material universe. The Tripartite Tractate says the irrational things produced during the fall, known as the imitations of the deficiency, were condemned by Logos. During the chaos and disorder immediately following the fall, Logos battled against what came forth from him. Quote, Until the one who brought forth into the defect these things which were thus in need, until he judged those who came into being because of him contrary to reason, which is the judgment which became a condemnation, he struggled against them unto destruction. End quote. This passage is saying that Logos had produced these deficiencies that were in need of reason and order. And because they were contrary to reason, Logos judged them and condemned them. He initially tried to destroy them, but that didn't work because the ones who opposed his condemnation and wrath would simply not obey. Which is to say that 
Reason and facts are powerless against egoic irrationality. And so Logos gave up trying to cure the deficiency. Instead, what was perfect in Logos separated itself from its ego and went upward to his own in the fullness. Quote, the Logos turned to another opinion and another thought. Having turned away from evil, he turned toward the good things. Following the conversion came the thought of the things which exist and the prayer for the one who converted himself to the good. This passage indicates that Logos changed his mind about the feasibility of destroying the deficiency. He came to a new understanding of the situation, and he realized the hopelessness of correcting it on his own. Once he realized this, Logos was able to remember the eons of the fullness, those things that exist, and he responded to a prayer for the one who had converted himself to the good. Since Logos is the one who had converted himself to the good, the prayer must have been offered by the eons of the fullness on his behalf to bring their emanation home. It is referred to as the prayer of the agreement, which is to say, the prayer of the fullness. Here is how the tripartite tractate describes it, quote, The one who is in the pleroma was what he first prayed to and remembered. Then he remembered his brothers individually, and yet always with one another, and then all of them together, but before all of them, the Father. End quote. Here we see that the act of calling Logos back to the fullness was similar to the act of producing him as an emanation in the first place. After giving up his attempts to correct the deficiency on his own, Logos returned to aeonic awareness. First he remembered the Father and the true source of consciousness, and then he remembered the Son. Logos then remembered his brothers of the fullness, as individuals within a totality. And lastly, he remembered the fullness as an entire gestalt. He remembered everything that existed from the first, from before the fall. And because he remembered, he was able to escape the deficiency and return his self to the fullness. Quote, the prayer of the agreement was a help for him in his own return and in that of the totality. For a cause of his remembering those who have existed from the first was his being remembered. This is the thought which calls out from afar, bringing him back. All his prayer and remembering were numerous powers according to that limit, for there is nothing barren in his thought. End quote. The pleroma of Logos was fully restored by the remembrance of the one source of consciousness and the fullness of God. The fractal body of Logos as images of the fullness was restored. Only his presumptuous ego was left behind in the simulation. The tripartite tractate goes on to say in verse 7, quote, The powers were good and were greater than those of the likeness. For those belonging to the likeness also belong to a nature of falsehood. From an illusion of similarity and a thought of arrogance has come about that which they became. And they originate from the thought which first knew them. End quote. 
The powers that were good and greater than the imitations were the newly restored powers of the Pleroma of Logos in the fullness. These restored powers of Logos were, quote, like some creatures of light for him, looking for the rising of the sun, since it happened that they saw him in dreams which are truly sweet. It immediately put a stop to the emanations of the thought. They did not any longer have their substance, and so they did not have honor any longer. End quote. In other words, once Logos remembered the fullnesses, whose lesser emanations of the egoic thought were recognized as things without spiritual substance, and the knockoffs that had proceeded from his ego were no longer produced. We will return to this discussion of the new Pleroma of Logos in a later chapter when we introduce the second order of powers. We will also come across the Pleroma of Logos again when we begin to look at the emanation of the Christ, who will ultimately redeem the fall. For now, we will continue to look at the time immediately following the fall, and how our material plane came to be organized by the estranged ego of Logos that we know as the Demiurge. As Logos retreated to its own in the fullness, the Father placed a boundary around the area containing that which had been produced as a consequence of the fall. The purpose of this boundary was to separate finitude from infinity, ignorance from truth, and light from darkness. Another essential purpose of the boundary was to establish an economy for a system about to unfold. Remember from our previous chapter that the tripartite tractate does not regard the motivation of Logos as blameworthy because he acted out of boundless love for the Father. So here we learn that the Father does indeed consider intent and not only the results of our actions. Additionally, as we discussed in the previous episode, the movement of Logos was the cause of an ordained economy that was destined to come about. Verse 77 says that the Father and the fullness set a limit on the result of the fall so that an organization could come into being. Quote, the Father and the totalities drew away from him so that the limit which the Father had set might be established. For it is not from grasping the incomprehensibility, but by the will of the Father. And furthermore, they withdrew so that the things which have come to be might become an organization which would come into being. If it were to come, it would not come into being by the manifestation of the pleroma. Therefore, it is not fitting to criticize the movement which is the Logos, but it is fitting that we should say about the movement of the Logos that it is a cause of an organization which has been destined to come about. End quote. The Father did not want the fullness to direct the establishment of this new economy. The Father wanted to spare the fullness from its involving itself in the chaos below. We refer to the non-material plane as the ethereal plane. The dictionary calls it the celestial or heavenly plane. The boundary serves the purpose of holding the deficiency away from the perfection of the Father and the All. 
This ensures the purity of the ethereal plane, so that none of its glory is diminished by the emerging economy, leaving intact the originating consciousness of the Father and Son, the All and the Fullness. The boundary serves the purpose of containing a space where an economy can emerge. And economy here means an orderly management or arrangement of parts and their relationships within an organization or system. You see, if you think about it, if there is no bounded space, if there is nothing but infinity, then there is no containment where things can be organized in relationship to each other. And all those little blue ball pieces of the broken logos would just keep rolling outward and never interact with one another. It requires a boundary to enable material to work together. In this context, economy refers to what we commonly call an ecology. An ecology cannot proceed without a defining boundary. The boundary was not established to prevent the unreachable from being reached, but, quote, for the sake of an economy that was to come about, end quote. This economy was to be the creation of this material cosmos, formed out of what was heretofore completely insubstantial and immaterial. When the eon known as Logos overreached and fell, Logos split apart into the logical, reasonable, one-self part, and the irrational, chaotic inverse of that one-self, which I've identified as ego. Those are the two aspects of the mind of Logos. After the fall, the one-self of Logos returned to the pleroma of the fullness. And once in the pleroma, the self of Logos worked together with the fullness of God and, with prayers to the Father, they came up with a couple of different ways to rectify the fall and to bring that fallen part of Logos, now called the Demiurge, back up into the fullness of God. We will see in a later chapter how the goal of creation is to restore the unity of Logos to the fullness of God. The boundary was established so that a hierarchy patterned after the fullness would have a space to take root and grow. The arrangement of the hierarchy of the fullness shows up throughout creation. Every small thing in our universe reaches out laterally to others to form clumps or aggregations of the next level up. Subatomic particles form atoms. Atoms form molecules. Molecules form elements. Elements form aggregations of building materials, always according to the simple golden rule of the higher, the fewer. This is why hierarchies look like pyramids at each level of aggregation. There are fewer instances of things forming the next level up. The cooperation amongst the hierarchy of the fullness is the prototype for the simple explanation's golden rule. That being, in order for units of consciousness to work and join together for the greater good, they need to share relevant information, they need to assist one another's efforts, and they need to love one another. However, 
Since this bounded space is controlled by the demiurge and not by the eons, the pattern of cooperation is an imitation of the golden rule. When we're talking about physical objects like atoms and molecules, which are nothing but shadows and phantoms of that which exists above, loving refers to the force holding objects together that mimics the hierarchy's love. Because the pattern of the hierarchy was carried by Logos when he fell, all of creation instantiates the same pattern. But, in this case, there is no true cooperation, but only an appearance of cooperation imposed by the demiurge. In the fullness, everyone knows their job, and everyone does it in perfect cooperation with others for the benefit of all. This was not occurring at this point in history. The deficiency was illogical. It was egoic. It was selfish. It was not working together. Therefore, the boundary was established in order to push the uncooperative shadows together so that they would be able to work together to form an ecology. Down here in our material universe, the parts of the universe that are material only lack life. Those material-only parts belong to the Demiurge because the Demiurge was not an emanation of the life of the Father. However, the fallen ego of Logos, the Demiurge, is the god of this material creation. It knows how to put together everything that was originally chaotic quantum foam with no rhyme or reason. Using a facsimile of the golden rule, which it carried as a shadow of its aeonic programming, the demiurge prompted the subatomic particles to hold hands with one another. This enabled them to level up, to become atoms. And then the demiurge caused the atoms to hold hands with one another and become molecules. And then the molecules to hold hands with one another to become minerals, and mineral aggregations, and elements. This is the province of the Demiurge even today, ruling the materiality of the dead universe, the mud. The Demiurge is the creator god of this universe we live in. To faithful Hebrews and Christians, the name of the Demiurge is Yahweh, or Jehovah. Other world religions have other names for this creator god. Stories of Jehovah fill the Old Testament and carry forward into the New Testament. However, an interesting thing about Gnosticism is the declaration that there is another god who is called the Father, the god above all gods in Gnostic theology. And in Gnostic Christianity... The God above all gods is actually the Father to whom Jesus prayed. When Jesus said, I and my Father are one, and if you have seen me, you have seen my Father, the God he is referring to is not Jehovah. The God that Jesus is referring to is the God above all gods. Logos appointed an archon to bring order to the chaos. This archon is what we call the Demiurge. The Demiurge is able to control matter. Quote, the things which he has spoken, he does. End quote. The book of Genesis in the Bible attributes these actions of the Demiurge to Jehovah when it says, God saw all that he had made, 
and it was very good. End quote. The tripartite tractate says, quote, He is the Lord of all of them, that is, the countenance which the Logos brought forth in his thought as a representation of the Father of the Totalities. Therefore, he is adorned with every name which is a representation of him, since he is characterized by every property and glorious quality. For he, too, is called Father and God, and Demiurge and King and Judge and Place and Dwelling and Law. The things which he has spoken he does. When he saw that they were great and good and wonderful, he was pleased and rejoiced, as if he himself, in his own thought, had been the one to say them and to do them, not knowing that the movement within him is from the Spirit who moves him in a determined way toward those things which he wants. End quote. Those of the imitation do not know of the hierarchy of the fullness, nor do they have assigned roles and places there. Lacking the cooperative design, they exist in a state of perpetual disturbance, driven by self-centered ambition. The tripartite tractate says the imitations, quote, exalted themselves in lust for dominion, each one of them according to the magnitude of the name of which he was a shadow, fantasizing that he would become greater than his fellows, end quote. And that quote is from the translation by Thomason. In the fullness, each of the powers and personalities of the eons is represented as a pure pattern of some aspect of the Logos itself. The phantoms of the deficiency were already a couple of orders of magnitude smaller than the eons, being shadows of the fractals of Logos, and they lacked their position in the hierarchical structure of the Pleroma. Consequently, they knew nothing but lust for dominion. We can think of this boundary as a bubble containing our universe. If you want to believe in the standard cosmology of the Big Bang and end expanding universe, you can picture these chaotic imitations as quantum foam. Quantum foam is the lowest level of instantiation in this universe of ours, and quantum foam is characterized by randomness and chaos. It does not work together, and that is why it is called foam because it is constantly producing matter and antimatter that cancel out and destroy each other. Consequently, nothing is building. Nothing is able to reach out to level up. They lack the golden rule of cooperation because they came from the fall rather than from the fullness. The Demiurge went about organizing this universe out of the quantum foam. Quote, over those who belong to the likeness, he set the word of beauty, so that he might bring them into a form. End quote. At first he established energetic waves, then subatomic particles followed by atomic particles. Everything according to the higher the fewer pattern of the hierarchy. The particles combined to make atoms, the atoms combine to make molecules, the molecules combine to make elements, the elements combine to make minerals, and the aggregations of minerals. And that 
is the limit of the God of this universe. The Demiurge can only level up to the mineral level. All of the hard, rocky places in our material universe are the handiwork of the Demiurge. So yes, the Demiurge is the creator God of this universe, and it is the one who orders the material universe and who keeps everything functioning down here, but only up to the mineral level. The Demiurge works in a very different manner than the fullness of God. The pleroma of the fullness is hierarchical, so it's shaped like a pyramid because the higher the fewer is a basic principle of hierarchies. The pleroma of the eons in the fullness metaphorically hold hands with one another as they share information, they share love, they share assistance, and together they dream of paradise. And we all share this vision of paradise. All of the humans on the planet have a foretaste of paradise. And not only the humans, but every living thing on the planet, from bacteria on up. We are all what is called the second order of powers. And we come from the pleroma. This will be explained more thoroughly later in the book. We don't come from the Demiurge. The Demiurge is only in charge of the material universe. The Demiurge is in charge of the mud, the material, the hard, rocky places. At the small scale, the dirt and the elements. And at the large scale, the rocky planets and the stars in the heavens. If there are creatures on a planet, they coat the outside of a dead, rocky planet. Life only comes from the Father. Life is top-down. Death is bottom-up. The way the Demiurge brings order to its creation is through strings of power. The Demiurge strictly controls everything in our material portion of the universe using strong strings of power, like a puppet master. In chemistry and physics, these strings of power are called valences and bonds, the bonds that hold chemistry together. Those are literally the bonds of the Demiurge. The material rocky parts of our universe do not have free will. They are simply extensions of the ego that is the Demiurge. Yet Logos in the fullness does have an influence upon his fractured ego down below. The tripartite tractate says that, quote, the Logos uses him as a hand to beautify and work on the things below, and he uses him as a mouth to say things which will be prophesied, end quote. So it is not as though our material universe is unable to be influenced by Logos in the fullness. It is simply that the Demiurge does not realize the origin of these pre-existent images, and so thinks it is the author of these great works. That's all for this week. Next week, we will pick up the mythology of our Gnostic origins as we take a look at the creation of all of us living creatures that are known as the Second Order of Powers. I really hope you are enjoying this exploration of Gnostic theology. It sounds kind of heavy and intellectual. That's because gnosis means knowledge. It means reason and logic. So it is the intellectual portion of our gnosis. But it comes out of our heart. It comes out of our one self that we all share. And so it's written in our hearts. 
and I'm confident that as you listen to me with an open heart, you will recognize these words, and they will resonate with you, and you'll go, aha, oh yeah, in a form of remembrance. It's not something you have to study to get, because you already know it. As the weeks continue to go by, we will continue to explore this gnosis that is shared with us in the tripartite tractate of the Nag Hammadi scriptures. I'm also posting a written version of each one of these episodes, you know. There's a transcript at GnosticInsights.com, which is the homepage of Gnostic Insights. And there you can also see all of the illustrations that you are hearing about because I illustrate all of these concepts to make them easier to grasp for people who have a hard time with translating the language. I think in terms of imagery, and we don't even need language in order to understand it. God bless all of us, and onward and upward.